Good morning. Uh, without telling you whose fault any of it was, we wound up having to shoot that video five or six times because we just couldn't get the lines right. And at the very end, I start listing all of these groups that you could bring, and every time I would list a different set of groups. So I was kind of excited to see it this morning and see which take they, they used uh, for the video to see what groups we invited and that you can bring. So we'd love to have you come and serve at Feed My Starving Children and come and be a part of that. And you can learn more about it on our website. Uh, if you look around this morning, and we skew a little bit older this morning, that's because uh, this weekend we got 240 students and leaders up at Fall Retreat. And they have been there throughout this weekend. Yeah. Uh, and I've heard great reports. If you look around and you see some parents of teenagers that look a little extra rested, that's because this is also fall retreat weekend, and maybe they've been able to get a little more rest this weekend. That's wonderful. Uh, I'd love to pray for those students as they're on their way back uh, and for the work that God has done over the course of this weekend and that it would flow into this coming week in their life. Father, we're so thankful for this focused and concentrated time in which our students have been able to gather and spend time talking about your holiness. And we ask that the work of your Holy Spirit that's taken place over this week would continue to manifest itself in the lives of our young people as they come back, as they enter back into regular life, into school for many on Mondays. We just pray that you'd be with them and strengthening them in this. In Jesus' name, amen. We are starting a new sermon series today uh, called The Roman's Road. And over the course of the next 18 months, in four different series, we're going to cover the entire book of Romans. It's going to be split up a little bit. And the first chunk, we're going to be looking at Romans chapters 1 through 4 before we get to our Christmas series this year. So we're going to be looking at how the gospel saves up there at the top uh, in this first part of our look at Romans, looking at chapters 1 through 4, and as we do, I'd like to invite you to enter into the imagination station. I would like you to imagine yourself as a Roman citizen in 57 AD. Uh, my understanding is that Kenny is going to be preaching this entire series in a toga to help people imagine this. So you have that to look forward to in a couple of weeks when he's over here. Uh, 57 AD, you're in Rome, you are in the largest and most important city in the world. Clearly, Rome is the center of the Roman Empire. There are over a million people that live in the city of the Seven Hills. It is the largest city in the world, and it's not even close. Chances are, you're a slave or a bondservant there in Rome. I know you think of yourself as management, but 60% of the population of Rome are bond servants. They're, they're in the Greek doulos, a slave. And so you probably live in a barracks on your master's property with other bond servants. Now, I want you to remember, whether you're servant or master, no, no one in this day and age has running water. Nobody has working plumbing, right? Imagine what your life is like. On the day-to-day, -day, you are also a part of a small but growing group of people in the city of Rome who are followers of Jesus the Christ. You meet with your fellow believers each and every day for encouragement and strengthening, but today is a special day. Today's Sunday. 
It's the Lord's Day. And all of the believers in Rome will be gathering in the home of one of the wealthy members in the church who has an interior courtyard where you'll gather together and meet by torchlight and candlelight in the evening. You see, Sunday's a work day in the Roman Empire. The weekend won't be invented for 1,800 more years. And so you have to work all day. And so your church, like most of the churches in the Roman Empire, is going to meet in the evening by candlelight and torchlight. The Romans in the city hate you. As a matter of fact, in a very derogatory way, they refer to you as atheists. Because the gods that they worship, Venus, Apollo, Mars, have physical bodies. They're just larger, more powerful manifestations of people, really. But you claim to worship a god who is unseen, who is spirit, who created the heavens and the earth. And because your God is unseen, while their gods have bodies, they refer to you as atheists, those who worship a God that cannot be seen. And they use it in a derogatory way about you, and they hate you because your worship is so different than theirs. As a matter of fact, the things they do in their worship, you consider and and even call out as wrong. Because their worship in pagan temples is about giant feasts and drunkenness and temple prostitutes. And you won't participate in that. Your worship looks very different than that. But it isn't just the Romans who hate you. The Jews in the city also hate you. Because the Jews blame you for getting them kicked out of Rome eight years ago. When Emperor Claudius, the previous emperor of Rome got angry with all of the Jews and Christians who were arguing over what he referred to as this Christus character in the Latin, Christ in the Greek. He he thought of them all as Jews, just having an inter-Judaism squabble. But as Jews and Christians fought, Claudius decided the easiest way to get rid of this fighting that was going on in his city was to just kick everyone that he considered to be a Jew out of the city of Rome. Now, three years ago, Claudius died in very mysterious circumstances as someone poisoned him. And his nephew Nero has taken over. And Nero has allowed all of the Jews and the Christians to come back into the city at this point. Nero, he seems like he might be a pretty good emperor at this point. At this point. Right? Yeah, things will get worse. As you gather for worship on this Lord's Day, a rumor has run throughout the body of Christ in Rome that a letter has come from the Apostle Paul. You've never met the Apostle Paul because he hasn't been to Rome. Your church has never received a letter from him before. But you know all about the Apostle Paul. You know the legend of this man who grew up under the primary teacher in Judaism, Gamaliel, and was his prized student. You've heard how when thousands of Jews in Jerusalem began to declare the resurrection of this Messiah, Jesus, how Paul tried to keep Judaism pure by persecuting Christians, sending them to jail, overseeing their executions. Everyone who is a part of your church in Rome knows the account of Paul's meeting of Jesus on the road to Damascus when the risen Jesus appeared to Paul and called him into relationship and into work as his apostle to the Gentiles. 
Everyone knows these accounts about Paul. But today, for the first time, a letter has come. And so you're excited as you sit there, torchlight all around, and someone steps to the front and breaks the seal on that letter from Paul and reads to you the first sentence of this letter written to the Roman church, which says, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh, and was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. To all those in Rome, who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. That's right. That's the first sentence. Right? Paul clearly didn't get the lecture that we all did in fifth grade about run-on sentences because this sentence is immense. And he just keeps going and going. You need like five breaths to get all the way through that sentence. As we read this first sentence in the book of Romans, we are struck by the call that God has placed upon Paul's life. That God has called Paul to a new relationship, a new identity, and a new mission. But then as we continue to make our way through this long sentence, we recognize that it isn't just Paul that has received a call from Jesus Christ, is it? As we read through verse 6, we see that we're called to be followers of Jesus. Verse 7 says we're called to be saints, whatever that means. And we realize that Paul isn't the only one who's been called to a, a new relationship, a new identity, a new mission. That we as his followers are all called to that same new life. What, what is it that we've been called to? What is it that Jesus has called us as his followers to? Well, well, these first few verses of the book of Romans give us a complete picture of what it is that we've been called to in Jesus Christ. And it starts with the fact that we are called to be servants of Jesus. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, he identifies himself in the same way that every follower of Jesus would identify themselves. He's the master and I'm his servant. He's the king and I'm a subject in this kingdom. When we walk through our daily lives, it isn't our independent desires that govern how we're going to act and the decisions we're going to make. It's Jesus and his teaching. As we walk through life, it isn't the desires of others or their expectations of us that govern how we're going to act. It is instead the commands of Jesus that govern how we're going to act and the decisions that we're going to make. He's our master, and we pay attention to his teaching. And what a good master he is. Every command that Jesus gives us, every teaching that we find in the Scripture is for our good. Every teaching that our God gives us is for our good. It doesn't always feel like that, right? Uh, th there were times when my kids were little, and when they came to the dinner table, all they wanted was dessert for dinner. Not, not dinner, just dessert. 
there were weeks on end when all they wanted for meals was dessert. And as their dad, I would bring this command to the table. I probably didn't call it that. That no, we are going to eat dinner and then dessert. We're not just going to eat dessert for all of our meals. Oh my goodness, that felt so repressive to them. How could you do this to us? But my commands were for their good. And in the same sense, everything that God commands us is for our good. We, we have a good master and we are called to be his servants in every area of our life. Not only are we called to be his servants, we're called to be his servants who spread the gospel. Paul says, I'm called to be an apostle set apart for the gospel of God. Now, Paul was called, in a way to be, called to be an apostle in a way that we're not. He was called to be an apostle with a large A. That is, he met the risen Christ face to face and was directly commissioned by the risen Christ. Those are criteria we're not going to meet. But the New Testament uses the word apostle in a more general way as well. And we're called to be apostles with a small a, those who bring a message on behalf of someone else to someone else. We're called to be those messenger apostles. Matthew 28, we're called to make disciples. Acts 1, we're called to be his witnesses. 1 Peter 3, we're called to always be ready in order to give a reason for the hope that we have. We are called to be a people who spread the message of Jesus. That's God's call on our life. It was God's call on Paul's life. It's his call on our life as followers of Jesus. We're going to talk more about that in just a few minutes. But I want us to recognize we are also called to trust our sovereign God as we spread the message of Jesus. We're called, to spread, uh, we're called to spread the message of Jesus and trust our sovereign God in that process. Verses 2 and 3, which he promised, the gospel which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son who was descended from David according to the flesh. God promised Jesus hundreds of years before Jesus came. As a matter of fact, in our last sermon series, we saw that as soon as sin occurred, God made a promise to people that a son would come who would what? Crush the head of the serpent. 600 years before Jesus in Jeremiah 23, 5, God says, my son is going to come and he's going to come from the line of David. 700 years before Jesus in Micah chapter 5, verse 1, he says, my son is going to come. One who is ancient of days will be born in Bethlehem. What? How's that going to work? 700 years before Jesus was born in Isaiah 53, 1,000 years before Jesus was born in Psalm 22, we are told that one would be crushed for our sins. One would take our punishment upon the cross. 1,000 years before Jesus in Psalm 16, we're told that one would come who would not be defeated by death. He would never see decay, but would overcome death. God made all of these promises, and because he is sovereign, he fulfilled all of them in Christ hundreds and hundreds of years later. I don't have that ability. I made, years and years ago, I made a promise that I would speak at a church for their Saturday night service. Uh, that weekend, we went up and hung out at a cabin with some family. And when the time came on Saturday for us to go and for me to speak at that Saturday evening service, we headed out on our journey and our car died. 
And we sat there not knowing how to get the car started. It took us hours and hours in order to get the car started so we could drive it home. Early into that process, I had to call the people who ran that Saturday night service and say, I'm not going to make it. You've got to come up with another plan. I'm really sorry. I told them I would be there, and I didn't fulfill that promise. Why? Because, believe it or not, I am not in control of all things. Right? I don't know all of the future, and I am not in control of how everything works together. And so I can't bring about the things that I've promised each and every time. But our God can. In his sovereignty, he brings about everything that he has promised. And there may be some of you in the room today who need the deep comfort that comes only from recognizing that whatever God has promised for you in your life, he will fulfill it. Right? He, he has promised that there's no more condemnation for you. Do you need that promise? Yes. He has promised that you've been set free from the slavery of sin, Romans 6. Anybody need that promise? He's promised that there is a future glory and eternal life with him. And we cling to those promises and recognize we can trust in our sovereign God to bring those things about. We are called to trust our sovereign God. We are called to trust our sovereign God and we are called by the God-man, Jesus Christ. Right? Actually, is that the God? <laughs> Who's calling right now? Is that? Right? Oh, we are called. Wonderful. I'm really sorry about that. All right. <laughs> Who was descended from David, it says, according to the flesh, and was declared to be the Son of God in power, according to the Spirit of holiness, by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. That is a mouthful, isn't it? But what I want you to see here is Jesus is fully human, descended from the line of David. But he is also fully divine, the Son of God, proven to be divine by his resurrection from the dead. And this passage says that is that he was declared to be the Son of God through his resurrection from the dead. And that Greek word for declared is the Greek word harizo, from which eventually, as it works its way through time, we get our word horizon. It, the Greek word means a place where everything changes or a point where everything changes. And that's what happens at the horizon. If you look at the horizon, you're looking at land, 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 sky. Isn't that what happens at the horizon? There's a complete and total change that takes place at the horizon. And this passage says the resurrection of Jesus Christ was the horizon event in all of human history. Harizo, it is the event in all of human history where everything changed, where sin and death were defeated, and where new life can be ours because of what Jesus did. It is the horizon event in all of human history that the God-man died for our sins. Because he was God, he was able to pay the infinite price that was owed because of my sin before an infinitely holy God. Because he is human, he was able to pay that price on behalf of humanity. The only way that we can be saved, the God-man Jesus Christ, he's the one who has called us. And he's called us to a life of obedience through whom we've received grace and apostleship 
to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. We're called to a life of faith that always leads to obedience so that we can call others to a life of faith that always leads to obedience. We're called to a life of faith that leads to obedience so that we can call others to a life of faith that leads to obedience. Anyone who has a genuine faith in Jesus Christ is going to be obedient to him and his commands. 1 John chapter 5, verse 3 says, For this is love, the love for God, that we keep his commandments. There's a lot of people who want to define love for God and love for other people under their own terms, in their own way. But the scripture is very clear that how we love God and how we love people is defined by the commandments that he's given to us. And his commandments are all about how we love God and how we love people. They are totally and completely tied together. And we are never to divorce love from the commandments of God. They go together. Love and the commandments of God always go together. We've entered into a life of obedience. Now this next one may freak you out a little bit. You are called to be a saint. You are called to be a saint to all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. This may be challenging for us because in our society, we don't use the term saint in the same way that the New Testament uses the word saint. What is the Catholic idea of a saint? The Catholic idea of a saint is someone who has entered into the believer's hall of fame. You do some good things, you do a couple miracles along the way, and then if you get 75% of the vote, you get in, otherwise you go to the Veterans Committee. I might be mixing up sainthood and the Baseball Hall of Fame a little bit there, but it's something along those lines. It is essentially, it is essentially a, a term we use for a super classification of believers. And even if we're not Catholics, we may have a tendency to use that term in that same way, to designate someone who is a super believer. There have been a lot of times where I have been talking with someone and in, in talking with them, I have revealed to them that my wife and I started dating in 1988 and that we have been together for the last 33 years. And often in that conversation, someone will say to me, wow, Erica must really be a saint. (laughs) What do they mean by that? Even even in a non-Catholic sense, we'll still use that term saint to talk about someone who's really a super believer. But within the New Testament framework, everyone who is called by Jesus Christ is called to sainthood. We are all called to be saints of Jesus Christ. And that word saint means one who is called to be holy. And that's every one of us. Romans chapter 8 verse 29 says that God has saved us so that we will be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. That's not some of us. That's every one of us. We've been saved for the purpose of being conformed to the image of Jesus Christ that we would have his character. God saved every one of us so that we will know Jesus more and become more like him. He's called all of us to holiness. When he refers to his body, he says, you are a holy 
priesthood, a group of saints. That is what the church is meant to be. And that's his call upon our lives. We are called to be his saints, to be a holy people. Part of what that means is that we are called to live as prayer warriors in our life. Part of what it looks like to live as saints and to draw closer and closer to Jesus is to live as prayer warriors in our life. The scripture tells us that we are to pray without ceasing. We are to be a people of constant prayer. And Paul models that as he prays for people in all of the epistles that he writes. And here in Romans, he writes to this group of believers and says, First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing, I mention you always in my prayers, asking that somehow by God's will, I may now at last succeed in coming to you. He's thanking God for them. He's praying for them. He's even specifically praying that he would have an opportunity to go and be with them, to meet the Roman believers and to minister with them. Paul has the monumental task on his plate of being the apostle to the Gentiles. It's Paul's job to be a part of spreading the gospel of Jesus Christ around the known world. That's a pretty big task. Uh, Paul's a pretty busy guy. And yet he recognizes, I can never be too busy to stop and spend time with the Lord, day in and day out, praying and praying and praying. I'm reminded of the quote by Martin Luther, who said, I have so much to do that I must spend the first three hours of every day in prayer. Okay, maybe we're not in the three-hour place. But God's call on all of our lives is that we would be prayer warriors like Paul, that we would be a praying people. Uh, I want you to think of what comes into your mind when you hear that phrase, prayer warrior. Because so often, what pops into our head when we hear the phrase prayer warrior is someone who is well past retirement age. Often, I hear people say, my grandmother is such a prayer warrior. And that's great. Your grandmother should be a prayer warrior. I'm all for that. But we are all called to be prayer warriors. There are to be 22-year-old prayer warriors and 47-year-old prayer warriors and, yes, 88-year-old prayer warriors. That's God's call upon all of our lives, that we would be a people of prayer. Now, I want to pause and look at one part of Paul's prayer here because it may be an encouragement to you. Paul says, I have been praying that I can come and be with you guys. As a matter of fact, if you look at verses 12 and 13, he says, I, I really want to be with you for the sake of kingdom purposes. I want to encourage you. I want to share my gifts with you. I, I want to build you up in the faith. And yet, to this point, how has God answered Paul's continual prayer to go and be with the Roman church? The answer has been no. No. I got to believe that as Paul is praying this, he is saying, God, this makes so much sense that as the apostle to the Gentiles, I would have an opportunity to go to the greatest city in the world and spread the gospel message throughout that city in a way that impacts everything else around us, 
Of course this makes sense for the gospel. Of course this makes sense for the kingdom. And God's answer to Paul every year has been no. And actually it will be for the next few years after this. And I am so thankful that God said no to Paul. Right? Because what is the product of God's no? It's this letter. Because Paul didn't get to go to Rome, because Paul didn't get to be with them face to face, Paul wrote to them this letter. A letter that has had untold impact for 2,000 years upon the church of Jesus Christ. In the 4th century, a famous man who shaped much of the theology and doctrine that we know as he pieced together what the scriptures had to say, a man named Augustine said, it is the first four chapters of the book of Romans that drew me to relationship with Jesus Christ. Martin Luther said, it is the book of Romans upon which the Reformation was built. John Wesley said, it was going through the book of Romans with Martin Luther's commentary next to it that convinced me that I needed to preach in the Americas and throughout England. Right? Because God said no, there's been 2,000 years of people coming to faith in Jesus Christ because of what Paul wrote here. Anyone in this room, anyone in this room been impacted by verses like all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God? Anyone in this room been impacted by verses like the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus my Lord? Anyone in here been impacted by the teaching of Romans? That's while I was still a sinner that Christ died for me. Paul kept praying and praying and God kept saying no to this prayer request and we're so thankful that he did. Ultimately, Paul's prayer was about wanting to make kingdom and gospel impact. And by saying no to Paul's very specific plan, God actually produced far greater gospel and kingdom impact through what would happen. And if you're in a place right now where you're praying for something, and you're saying, Jesus, doesn't this make sense for your name and your kingdom? Be encouraged by this example of Paul, that often God uses a no in order to bring about something far greater than you could have imagined. I can't believe that Paul wrote this and knew that 2,000 years later, so many of us in the room would have come to faith through his writing. But that's exactly what has happened. That's exactly what has happened. We, we are called to be a people who are prayer warriors. We also see in this passage, we're called to be a group of encouragers. When I was younger, uh, I... Uh, completed a couple of triathlons, much younger. <laughs> really just did it to get in shape. It's not my thing. But they were uh, competing in those triathlons, some of the most encouraging environment I have ever been a part of. Uh, because when you go to a triathlon, there's like, I don't know, in the ones I was a part of, maybe five, 600 people competing. There's like 10 people who are really serious about it and want to win. Everyone else just wants to finish or do their best time. And it creates this unbelievably encouraging environment where every time somebody passes you, they whisper encouragement to you as they're on their way. Keep going. You can do it. You've got this. And I had a lot of people pass me. 
I got a lot of encouragement. <laughs> I must look like I was going to die because a lot of people are like, keep breathing. <laughs> that, that's us as the body of Christ. We are those encouragers. We recognize that God has put us on a pathway in which we are running towards be- knowing Jesus and becoming like him. And encouragement in the scriptures isn't just helping people feel better. That can be a part of it. Encouragement in the scriptures is being fellow runners, helping, to, you're helping your fellow runner to run as fast as they can towards knowing Jesus and becoming like him. That's God's call in our life. It says, For I long to see you that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. That is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith both yours and mine. And then he goes on to talk about his desire to be with them again for these purposes. He wants to be with them so that he can encourage them through his gifts and so that they can encourage each other because that's God's call in our life, that we would be encouragers. When you come here on a Sunday morning, your primary motivation isn't to get something out of this. Yes, you should get something out of this. We're meeting with the living God. If you don't get something out of this, then we're doing it wrong. But that's not the primary motivation. According to Hebrews 10, 24, and 25, your primary motivation as we gather is to look around the room and say, how can I encourage that person and that person to run all the more towards Jesus? When we gather with our life groups, we eat some good food, we study the scriptures, we pray together. But one of our primary motivations every time we gather is, how can I encourage these people who are here in my home to run after Jesus all the more? That, that's our call. We're to be encouragers. Finally, you are called and eager to share Jesus. Right? You are called and eager to share Jesus. The final point we see here flows out of verses 14 through 16. I am obligated. I want you to note that word. He's what? He's obligated both to Greeks and non-Greeks, both to the wise and the foolish, That is why I am so eager to preach the gospel also to you who are in Rome. He's obligated. But do you notice what else he is? He's eager. He's both. He's obligated and eager to share the gospel. It's the call and command of Jesus that we share the gospel, and so we are obligated to be obedient to that command. But we also love God, and we want to see more worshipers of him. And we love people and we want to see them come into relationship with him. So we're not just obligated, we're also what? We're eager. We are obligated and we are eager because we understand, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes, first to the Jew and then to the Gentile. Right? That, that's our memory verse for this series. Right? I am not ashamed of the gospel. What is it? It is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes, first to the Jew and then to the Gentile. I remember my wife and I teaching my daughter this uh, when it was an Awana verse in song, right? I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm not going to sing it for you because that would be painful for everyone. My wife can sing it for you later. We are eager and desire to share this message with people. It's the power of salvation. Let's say that I discovered that the cure for every disease on the earth 
was to eat a small bowl of Rocky Road ice cream before you go to bed. It's not. I've done the research on this. Um, But but pretend with me here for a second. The the cure for every disease is to eat a small bowl of Rocky Road ice cream before you go to bed at night. If I discovered that, wouldn't I want to start sharing that with everybody I know? Absolutely I would. And I sat and thought about, what would be reasons I wouldn't share that with everybody I know? Well, one, maybe I hate people. Right? I mean, if, if I find out that there is a cure for every disease on the planet and I am unwilling to share that with you, what, what do we call that? That's just outright hate, right? I am absolutely not seeking your best. I am harming you by not sharing that information. That's one possibility. The other possibility I thought of is maybe I just don't believe enough in the cure. Maybe I think people might mock me or make fun of me if I share my Rocky Road cure with them. And I don't believe enough in the cure, so I don't share it with other people. Because if I truly believe that I have discovered the cure for every disease on the earth, I'm going to share it. And that's us, right? We're followers of Jesus. We're not just obligated because Jesus has commanded us. We are eager to share the message of Jesus with everybody around us. Because it's the cure for the great disease that plagues humanity. The only eternal disease that there is, the disease of sin. And so we want to share it everywhere we go. We're eager to share it everywhere we go. We're not ashamed of the gospel. Who is this gospel message for according to this verse? It's the power of God for salvation to everyone. Jew and Gentile. Old and young. Smart and stupid, rich and poor, you come up with the categories, doesn't matter. It is the gospel message that is for the salvation of everyone who believes. Who believes? We must place our faith and trust in Jesus Christ in order to enter into the call that he has on our lives. Have you believed? Have you entered in to the call of Jesus that we see here in these first few verses of Romans? A call in which we become servants of our master Jesus. A call in which we become saints seeking to be his holy people. Have you entered into that call through the work of Jesus Christ? Every time we participate in these elements, it is a reminder to us of the call that Jesus has placed on our life. That as we take the bread that represents his body, as we take the cup that represents his blood, that he has forgiven our sins and called us into new relationship, new identity, new mission in his life. I'm going to give us a few minutes to just meditate and spend some time with God praying and praising him for what he has done in order to bring this calling into our life. Uh, Today, the band's going to play for a little bit as you spend some time with Jesus. And then there's going to be one song that will be sung that you can sing along with if you choose. Uh, I want to emphasize one song because over the last few weeks you've had two songs in order to go and get the elements. But go when you're ready to go and get the elements. And then when you return to your seats, 
um, after that song, I'll lead us in the taking of these elements. Father, we're so thankful for your constant and abiding goodness and for what you have done in order to bring us into the call of Jesus Christ. Amen.